This is The Enthusiast's Guild, a place for conversations about wonderful and interesting things with the people who enjoy them. I'm Fletcher C. Finch, and my guest today is Rachel Morlock, who I've known for an awfully long time. Rachel's here to talk about the impressionist Mary Cassatt. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. So it is pronounced Mary Cassatt, right? I always say Cassatt, but some people do say Cassatt. Uh, she was from the Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania. And so according to the local accent, it's possible that she may have said Cassatt. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I live in the Buffalo area and I'm a freelance writer and copy editor. And I tend to work on educational materials for children. Through my work, I had the opportunity to write a biography of Mary Cassatt. I was thrilled because, uh, first of all, I had already been familiar with her work and loved it. And I studied art history in college. So I was really excited to kind of take a deep dive into her life and explore the Impressionists a little bit more. So it was a really fun project for me to work on. How did your interest in Mary Cassatt begin? I had always been interested in the Impressionists. Probably that stems from my mom's interest in the Impressionists. Uh, we had a lot of family trips to uh, museums, and I know there were a few exhibits that came through the Albright Knox featuring Impressionist works and some parts of their permanent collection. And then also a lot of family trips to the National Gallery in D.C. or other museums where I was able to see Impressionist works. Uh, I don't remember the exact moment of my introduction to Mary Cassatt, but I'm sure it fell somewhere in one of those museums. And can you tell me a little bit about Mary Cassatt's artistic career? Yes. So from a very young age, she knew she wanted to be an artist. Um, she was born in Pennsylvania, but she traveled with her family as a young child to England and France and Germany. And she actually went at a really wonderful time. She was in London in 1851 during the Great Exhibition at the London Crystal Palace. So she would have been introduced to artwork there. She was in Paris, which was the epicenter of the art world at the time. And as she, as her family was leaving Europe, it's possible that she was able to see the Universal Exhibition. I think that's what it was called in 1855 in Paris, which was a really monumental moment in art history when not only were the more accepted academic paintings displayed, but Courbet had his own special pavilion where he was kind of breaking the mold of what was considered to be acceptable art at the time. So she was in Europe for these really pivotal moments in art history. And uh, when she returned home to Pennsylvania, she continued to have an interest in art. And when she was 15 years old, she applied to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Arts, which was in Philadelphia, and was accepted. And as soon as she turned 16, which was the minimum age requirement, she began attending school there. So she studied alongside a lot of other famous American artists like Thomas Aikens and a handful of other women artists. At the time, it was it was a bit of a controversial choice for her to attend art school as a as a teenage girl. Her family was mostly supportive of the idea, uh, probably with the idea that it would mostly be a hobby for her and not necessarily a profession. Being an artist as a as a hobby was much more acceptable for women at the time, and encouraged in that way. 
But she had other ideas. And so after completing her training, she was a little bit delayed by the Civil War. She had to kind of wait for that to end before she could return to Europe. But she continued her education there by traveling all through France, Mm -hmm. Paris and rural France, studying with different artists there. And then she continued on through Italy and uh, Spain and just kind of kept building her skills, studying old masters and contemporary artists and developing her style. And then eventually landed back in Paris where she spent most of her life then working as an artist. You had mentioned the academic, the accepted academic style or or the accepted artistic style through the the academic system at that point. What was that and, and how did that compare to what was coming up in the art world? That's a really good question. So academic art was tied to the Academy of it's in French, it's Académie de Beaux-Arts. That's, I have to first apologize for my terrible French pronunciation of anything I will say that's French. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> so basically, the, that's a state-sponsored school in France that is the arbiter of what is great art and what deserves to be hung in the state buildings or cathedrals or so their opinion is of monumental importance for artists in France at that time. There are a lot of artists who really fit the mold. If you think of Ong or Jerome, uh, there are a number of artists. I wish I could show you a slide right now. <laughs> All these artists were really interested in art of the classical period. So they were focusing on Greek and Roman artistic styles. They were using religious or classical mythological themes as their subject matter. And the goal was to create these really beautiful idealized images that were highly finished and very polished. So something that would look extremely lifelike, I guess in an idealized way. So that's kind of the academic art of the time. Yeah, so so almost a a photorealistic look, but with a a classical composition? Yes, classical composition, ideas of, classical ideas of line and composition and color and yeah, very, very traditional in a lot of ways. What happened at this juncture, um, which Mary Cassatt was a little bit late in coming to because she was um, abroad studying the old masters in Italy and Spain, and she had to return to the U.S. at a certain point during the Franco-Prussian War. So there were there was a lot happening in Paris in friction with this academic art. And also, uh, Mary Cassatt was really interested in meeting the the standards of academic art in the beginning. So she was applying or pre- uh, submitting paintings to the salon, which was um, mm-hmm. kind of the event of the big event of the art world. So there was a jury that would select which works deserve to be hung in the salon. Salon means room. It comes from this one room in the Louvre, the square room, uh, where these paintings would be hung. And they would be kind of piled up on top of each other and (laughs) reaching all the way up to the ceiling. And so 
artists were kind of jockeying not only to be accepted, but then to have their work merit a position at eye level. <laughs> so that otherwise, uh, all the work that was placed really high up was said to be skied. It was difficult to see. And it was another reason why artists at this time made really large paintings that they wanted they wanted their work to be noticed. I've seen that at, at museums, these enormous, almost oversized paintings. And I suppose if they were displayed so high, so high up in the air that if, if you wanted to get a viewer's attention, you would need to be enormous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And another thing was uh, at that time, a lot of art was destined for churches or cathedrals or state buildings, places where being grand was was definitely the goal. Uh, and that's something that Impressionists changed also. At this point, would it be fair to say that Paris was the center of the Western artistic world? Yeah, and really important to say Western. Thank you for saying that because I think I assume that that's known. But yeah, that's true. It's definitely Western art. Cassatt back in Pennsylvania felt that she could never be a true artist in the U.S. <laughs> she would have to go abroad and not only to see these great old paintings that made up the canon of art history, but also, which there were very few of in the United States. You know, she was in, in the U.S. before some of the great collections that we have now, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. The Pennsylvania Academy had a kind of large for its context, but relatively small collection of casts and reproductions and some original work from the old masters who Cassatt wanted to study. To delve into that world and then also to have her work reviewed by the Salon, by the Academy. The, the highest artistic authorities of the day? Yes. So in order to do that, she felt she had to go to Paris. So it's important to have an idea of what the academic art at the time was like so that you know what the Impressionists were responding to when they developed what became this big movement. The art world had kind of become stuck in this really narrow definition of what art could be and what it could look like and what what materials you could use and what colors you could use even or what, what subject matters were appropriate. The Impressionists were kind of as a whole fed up with this system and a lot of them were tired of being refused by the salon, having their works rejected. And so they got together, not as impressionists, but just as independent artists who wanted to be able to show their art to the public without having a jury decide what was good and what wasn't and without having any kind of state involvement in what they were doing. So those were kind of the basic tenets of this independent group of artists, they were, they called themselves the, uh, not, uh, excuse me, the Anonymous Society of Painters, Sculptors, and Printmakers, etc. They got together, uh, they borrowed a studio from a photographer at the time and made their first exhibit together in 1874. And who were some of these artists? So the, I, I don't have a list of exactly, I d used to have this wonderful breakdown of who exhibited at each of the Impressionist shows, but I couldn't find it. Um, but a lot of the names who will be familiar to you probably as Impressionist artists were part of the initial, and then there were eight total Impressionist exhibits. So some of the best known artists of that group today would be Claude Monet and Auguste Renoir, Camille Pizarro, Gustave Caillot. But I don't know how to say that. <laughs> um, 
and uh, some artists who we have kind of lost in our modern appreciation of Impressionism, but their names have been, you know, a little less prominent. I mean, we tend to think of this very specific style, um, but that wasn't necessarily what drew these artists together in the beginning. It was mostly just that they wanted to explore their own styles and their own artistic vision, and they needed a space to do that. And so they got together in order to show their work to the public. And it was actually a critic who coined the term Impressionism, or who called these artists the Impressionists, um, based on a painting by Monet, Impression Sunrise. And uh, he felt that it wasn't a finished painting, it was just an an impression. And uh, the name stuck and the artist kind of eventually <laughs> took it on as their own and reclaimed it. And so that's how we know them today. Now, were they more similar philosophically then since since they weren't necessarily of a, of a school artistically? Yeah, they were drawn together philosophically. And part of that was this idea that modern life should be celebrated in in art, in the art of the day. There's actually an essay written by Charles Baudelaire, who kind of laid out what would become a lot of the Impressionist manifesto. And that was that um, the world was kind of tired, artists at least, were tired of these old classical themes and tropes and, and that there was something lost in them because they didn't reflect anything of the modern moment. Impressionists were really interested in putting all these changes that were happening in society on display. And Paris was, was had undergone a lot of recent changes. Um, there were new railway stations. There, were, there was the possibility of taking the railroad out to the countryside and engaging in these kind of middle-class leisure activities. There were the wide boulevards of Paris had kind of recently been built. And so artists wanted to celebrate these large public spaces that were iconic in Paris at the time. And so in addition to rejecting the academy, they were also embracing the modern world around them. And modern, also modern materials at that time, Tin tubes had just been invented for carrying paint around. Uh, instead of mixing up paint in your studio, you could bring these ready-made tubes of paint out into the world with you. You could bring a small canvas and set it up and paint outside. So they, they were really interacting with the world around them in a way that was pretty revolutionary at the time. And how did Cassatt get involved in this group of artists? As I said, she was really interested in the slot, in, in academic art at first and finding a place within that, getting their approval so that she was able to sell her work and support herself as an artist. But she was just becoming more and more disillusioned with that world. Uh, she had a number of paintings rejected for reasons that she thought were very trivial. So there was one painting where it was refused by the salon and she just kind of darkened the background and submitted it again the next year and it was accepted that time. So she felt like they had like really strict rules about like, oh, the background has to be dark. Uh, it has to, they just had to like tick all these little boxes that she felt stifled her art. She missed some of the early Impressionist exhibits, but returned to Paris. She saw the work of Degas in a gallery window, and she wrote about how she she was just 
pressing her nose up against the glass, trying to take it all in because she loved it so much. She said it was art as she wanted to see it. It was kind of what she had been waiting for. So she, she got a little exposure to what these independent artists were doing. And she was able to meet the guy who invited her to join the next Impressionist exhibition. And so she participated in an exhibition in 1879. That was her first her first official work with the Impressionists. And what are some of her best known paintings? She's most known as a painter of mothers and children. That theme kind of came into her work a little bit later on. When she first joined the Impressionists, she was painting a lot of scenes of, well, her work is almost exclusively based on women's activities. That's partly because of the limitations she faced as a, as a woman artist, uh, that she wasn't she didn't have the same access to these spaces that were really prominent in the impressionist works of male artists like the cafes or the dance halls of brothels, these places that would have been kind of unseemly for her to <laughs> be inserting herself and observing the world in. And so instead, she focuses on uh, more domestic spheres. So women at home, entertaining guests, uh, having tea in the drawing room, or performing labor, doing childcare. Also, these really brilliant scenes in the the opera of women taking in art, but also being on display to the public. And that, uh, there were a lot of opera scenes within the Impressionist artists too, both male and female. Do you know what her thoughts were on this subject matter? I don't know if there are existing letters or, or diaries or, or anything like that of, of what she thought of her own work. That's, that's kind of where I was curious. There's nothing I've read that I know of that directly addresses those kind of limitations. And if she was frustrated with them or if she just thought they were except, you know, if she she just accepted them. I think that she she was just really motivated to find her own vision. And so if that meant that she was looking elsewhere than male impressionists, then I think that was fine with her. She was just she wanted to pursue art the way she wanted to, and she wanted to have a unique view and do things her own way. So my guess or my my gut feeling, I guess, is that she was she's had a lot of curiosity about the spaces that she could explore and uh, with propriety. (laughs) So yeah, that's my feeling about it at least. And this kind of leads into my next prepared question, which is what sets Casada apart from other artists of the time? Yeah, definitely her focus on these primarily female spaces. And uh, she wasn't the only female artist. She There were um, at least three other women artists who exhibited with the Impressionists. Bert Morisot, Marie Brockman, and Ava Gonzalez are three that I can think of right now. Um, so she she wasn't alone in this pursuit. Um, and she, yeah, and, and these other artists were also exploring similar subject matters. So women at home or women with children or uh, women on these, in these kind of semi-public spaces of balconies and verandas gardens. So yeah, so there, she wasn't, I guess that's not what sets her apart exactly. If you're looking at her women and work with, with women and children, which is what she's most known for, I would say 
what sets her apart is the real intimacy of these interactions and the kind of authenticity with which they're portrayed. And that comes across because of a lot of these impressionist ideas that she employs, like using kind of cropped framing or uh, the sense that that there's an ephemeral moment that she's capturing. And you can kind of imagine the motion or the gestures on either side of that moment. So I think that's what, what to me feels really special about her art. She was also very diverse in her artistic techniques. So she she painted, but she also did a lot of work with pastels. She did a lot of printmaking and experimented really widely with printmaking. She was inspired by Japanese prints, which were exhibited in Paris at the time. She So she was very adventurous. And even though her subject matter was slightly limited, she cast her net pretty wide in figuring out how she wanted to portray it or, or what kinds of effects she could achieve. Can you tell me about researching your book about Mary Cassatt? Yes, it was a really exciting process for me. I had this like major adrenaline rush and when I found out I was that I had received the commission and I would be writing the book, I was like running around my apartment and jumping up and down. <laughs> So I was really excited to first to explore the Impressionists and also to explore a 19th century spinster, which is a, a group of people who are really near and dear to my heart. <laughs> is that because you, you think they're they're undervalued or because you think they're especially interesting or, or a combination of those? I think they're really interesting. I think um, they're not undervalued because a lot of those women are the ones who we know about from the 19th century. They're the writers and the social reformers who make it into the history books. So I'm thinking of like Susan B. Anthony or Jane Addams, Louise May Alcott, the list goes on and on. Yeah, so I think they're they're just a really intriguing group because they were breaking the mold so radically because they had like a burning passion within them to, and they felt that the only way they could follow that was to live a single life. So that's definitely true for Mary Cassatt, who would have likely had to give up her art had she married. She already had a lot of interruptions in her artistic life because of family obligations, caring for uh, her parents when they were sick or her sister. And I don't think that she resented those, but I can see how having her own family would have really diminished her artistic career or been a challenge at least. Did you come across anything that surprised you while you were doing your research? So one of my favorite things was to read Cassatt's letters or and the, also the letters of her circle which are published in a book by Nancy Mole Matthews, who's the leading Mary Cassatt scholar. Just to read those letters really gave me the flavor of, of Cassatt's personality and her kind of saltiness, really? <laughs> which I don't think you would guess at just looking at her work. Yeah, she had a definite temper. She was kind of always breaking and mending friendships because of her outspokenness. Mm. She was highly critical of other artists and she just was a woman of really strong opinions. Okay. So learning about that side of her was not only surprising, but also entertaining, I'd say. <laughs> so Degas, who played a really instrumental role in her in bringing her into the Impressionist group, they had kind of a really dynamic relationship where 
they're both kind of grumpy people and they would often be on the outs with each other, but it was always their art that would draw them back together, that they, they had this mutual regard for each other as artists. But she took a lot of pleasure in needling him. So really? <laughs> she said in one letter, she had been offered this job of, of making a mural for the World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago in 1893. And she was not going to take it. She, she had never done a mural before. She wasn't sure if it was something she wanted. She just wasn't sure if it was in line with her goals. But she told Degas about it. And he was <laughs> so opposed to it that she decided to do it just to spite him. And she said any mention of the word Chicago would set him off. Set him off. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And now were, were there other elements of her life or her art that you were especially excited to share? I'd like people to have a sense of how radical what she did was and also the Impressionists altogether, because when we look at them today, time has just softened the sharp edges of what was radical about them. And and also that that can be traced directly to these works that they changed our idea of what modern art should be. What she was doing was radical. People might look at it and think, oh, she's just painting babies and people drinking tea together. And it seems very traditional and conservative. But in reality, the medium she chose, the compositions she created, all these different elements came together to make her work really radical and even shocking for people at the time when she exhibited in America, which wasn't until later in her career. I think 1895 was her first exhibit in, in the United States. It was, it had mixed reviews, but a lot of people had really violent reactions to it and thought that it was grotesque and that these babies were disgusting and, and that um, her her handling of paint was really strange. So, yeah, I think it's just, it's neat to put that in perspective and see how the way we look at the art has changed, but it's because we've kind of adopted what the Impressionists were going for. Mm -hmm. So it's their success that makes us see it as something traditional at this point. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners? I, I wanted to talk about her connections in the art world. Mm -hmm. Cassatt made friends in Paris with a young woman named Louisine Elder, who um, later married Harry Havemeyer, who was a, a sugar tycoon in the United States. Through Mary Cassatt's friendship with Louisine Havemeyer, this great collection, private collection of artwork was created, the Havemeyer's personal collection. Cassatt traveled with the Havemeyers and advised them about what artwork she thought was important to the time and what artwork she thought they would appreciate. And they built their collection with a lot of input from Cassatt. She performed the same role with a lot of other family connections. Her brother was a railroad tycoon in the U.S., so he was wealthy and he had a lot of contacts who could, and, and he created his own collection as well. So she had a lot of influence in creating these private collections, which later became public collections. So the Havemeyers willed their collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so a lot of the Impressionist works that we know today in the United States are here because of Mary Cassatt and her friendship with Louisine Havemeyer. So she really played a a massive role in bringing Impressionism to the United States, uh, as did Louisine Havemeyer. 
Rachel, thank you so much for joining us and talking about Mary Cassatt and the Impressionists. Oh, it's been delightful to talk with you. Thanks for listening to The Enthusiasts Guild. Please subscribe to the show through your podcast player of choice. If you have feedback or suggestions, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Enthusiast Guild, on Facebook at The Enthusiasts Guild, or by email at theenthusiastsguild at gmail.com. Our music today is Ashton Manor by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons license.